blind dogs can live a happy, joyful, interesting life without vision. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 83 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. How much have you ever thought about your dog's vision? I'll be honest that it's probably something I've always taken for granted. Have you ever thought about how the breed of your dog affects their vision? That was something else that I had never considered before. We're joined today by our guest, Kathy Simons, and we're going to discuss all of this and so much more. I know February was Pet Dental Health Month, but we really need to think about our dog's dental health all year round. I recently learned that 80% of our dogs over three years old have active dental or periodontal disease. And dental disease is actually a sign of other inflammation in the body and can be connected to everything from cardiovascular problems, kidney problems, diabetes, certain types of cancers, joint disease. Your dog's dental health actually can affect everything in their body. And you know that I am obsessed with finding the best and healthiest products for our dogs. So I was so excited to find out about teeth. That's right, teeth. Just a tiny spoonful of teeth powder in your dog's water bowl will make a huge improvement in your dog's dental health. It's the only thing that ever made my vet stop and go, hey, what did you do with Penny's teeth? They actually look so much better. So forget trying to figure out how to get your dog's teeth brushed without them biting you. Forget those sticks or green shoes. What you need is teeth powder, just a tiny amount in your dog's water bowl. And listeners of this podcast can save 20% on your teeth order with the code ADM. And you'll be on your way to a healthier smile for your dog without any anesthesia needed. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more about teeth and save 20% on your orders. It'll also make a great stocking stuffer for your dog. So Kathy Simons has been working as a veterinary technician since 1986, and she always wanted a dog. And so when her and her husband got married and bought their house, they went to get a dog and her husband really wanted a pug. And Kathy had this great life with her pug, Buddha. His nickname was the emperor. Buddha was a bold, adventurous, fun-loving guy until the day he suddenly lost his vision from a condition called SARDS, Sudden Acquired Retinal Degeneration Syndrome. And all of a sudden, this bold emperor became a different dog, a, a shadow of his former self. And Kathy was devastated. Here she is a vet tech, and she feels like she missed something. But Kathy was determined, and she pulled herself together, and she went about creating a life for Buddha that would help 
both keep him safe and regain his confidence. So we're going to hear all about Kathy and Buddha's journey. And I had questions about our dog's vision. And Kathy fills us in on everything that we should know about our dog's vision because she literally wrote the book on this. It's called Blind Devotion, Enhancing the Lives of Blind and Visually Impaired Dogs. And she also wrote a second book, a children's book, called Watching Out for Digger, that is the very adorable adventure of a family with children adopting a blind dog. Because Digger was Kathy's second blind dog, a pug that she rescued who had also been suffering from this SARDS condition, and his family felt like they weren't able to care for him properly. So we have so much to cover to hear all about Kathy's story, as well as what pet parents should know about their dog's vision. And because Kathy works as a certified canine rehab practitioner, we're also going to talk some about canine rehab and what that's used for and how pet parents can best use this for their dogs. There's so much to talk about. I can't wait for you to meet Kathy Simons. So we are here today with Kathy Simons. Kathy, how are you? Hi, Erin. It's nice to see you again. Yes, you too. I have so much I want to talk to you about. I'm very excited. Me too. (laughs) So I always love starting off by asking about your childhood experiences with animals because I did not grow up with pets. I didn't even know I liked dogs until I was 25. It was all my husband's idea and it completely changed my life as you can possibly imagine now. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a complete life altering experience, right? Truly, you know, truly. For you. Good. Good. Welcome to the side, Erin. Welcome to the side. <laughs> so what did that look like for you? You know, I grew up actually in uh, in a, in a very city-ish area in uh, New York. And I lived in sort of like a down, downtown, like White Plains, New York. So we didn't really have, we didn't have any pets growing up. And I remember sort of around the age of 12, my parents were like, listen, we're going to move. We're going to move from New York to Massachusetts, to this very rural community here in Massachusetts, very farmlandish and um, lots of open space. It was wonderful. And I was like, I don't want to go. My friends are here. I don't want to go. I don't want to leave. And my parents were like, you can have a cat. And I was like, let's go. <laughs> I, was, I was out. Um, and that was a life-altering experience for me, much like you. Um, I didn't really truly grasp the power of having a pet uh, in your life, and particularly growing up, um, to have that someone to confide in, someone who kept your secrets, someone who was always there for you, someone who was just, you know, thought you were great, you thought they were great. Um, so it was definitely a life-altering experience, and that's sort of when I was like, okay, this is this is definitely sort of my calling. I, I need to uh, be involved with all animals all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't actually have dogs growing up, right? I didn't have a dog until I got married in 1999, and our, it was our very first uh, dog. Uh, you know, I, I said to my husband, you know, this is really important to me. I, I, I really would like to have a dog. And he said, you wanted a pug. And at first I was like, Oh, Oh, I, I don't know if that's, you know, is that going to be enough dog for me? <laughs> I loved that quote. <laughs> was, and it, and he was, he was a lot of dog and he was so confident and bold and he had so much self-love and I just fell in love with the breed after that. So that started sort of the whole, uh, you know, our life with pugs after that. So now we've had pugs probably, you know, 20 ish something years um, and now we have Mac, who's our fourth pug, um, who is more than enough dog for any one person. <laughs> and, you know, he's he's very active and he's extremely intelligent. And 
uh, he keeps us on our toes. He's a good guy. And so you made your your wish come true, right? That you have a career with animals. I did make my wish come true. Um, you know, I tried to, there were times in my life that I tried to veer off of that course and try other things and it never worked for me. Like I, I cannot fathom or understand going to work and not having a dog or a cat or a bird or a turtle or a guinea pig right then, right there or by my side. Um, so it, I just kept coming back to it. And um, at my beginning of my career, I started at Angel Animal Medical Center. And in those days, it was actually Angel Memorial Animal Medical Center, but I think they've changed their name since then. I started in the radiology department there, and I worked my way up to assistant supervisor of the radiology and nuclear medicine department there. Um, we did, you know, we saw a very large caseload of animals for routine radiography, but we also saw animals for things that um, that we that other places weren't doing, you know, in the mid '80s, like cardiac catheterizations and angiography, and we were treating hyperthyroid cats with radiation therapy. So we were doing a lot of groundbreaking work in that in those mid eighties. And that's kind of where it started. And for me, and and um I loved, you know, being in the radiology department because I love um I love to think about function and I love anatomy and physiology. Um, and so for me it was a natural course to sort of once I left Angel to start coursework at the University of Tennessee. In, for a certification in canine rehabilitation. So it sort of was a natural progression there. And I went to a smaller practice where I could have more one-on-one -on -one time with patients and clients versus a large caseload of, of animals coming in, you know, uh, that I actually got to know the clients and I got to know their pets and I got to know, I got to have a relationship with the pets and, and just really get to spend that quality time with them as a technician or as an advocate, right? Getting to know them very personally um, so that's what I enjoyed. So that kind of took me off into canine rehab. So do you consider it like I've heard different terms, like I've heard veterinary technician, I've heard veterinary nurse. Uh, what is your preferred title? You, you know what? I'm just happy somebody's calling me a professional. <laughs> I'm just happy that, that it's being recognized as a profession um, because I think that uh, we might be the underdog in the veterinary community in that I think, you know, there's maybe a misconception that, you know, we're, we're playing with puppies and kittens, you know, all day. And that's not true. You know, my day before I started doing canine rehab, you know, when I worked at a smaller practice as a technician was filled with surgeries and blood draws and labs and x-rays and talking to clients. And uh, it involved a lot of technical stuff that I had to go to school for and learn. So I, I'm happy just to be called a profession. Um, I'm old school because I've been a technician for a long time. So I typically tend, tend to lean towards saying veterinary technician. But if somebody wants to call me a veterinary nurse, I'm okay with that too. And maybe the public can relate more to what nurses do, even though it's not what we're doing, but maybe they get a better a picture or image of what we might be doing versus technicians. So. Yeah, you know, in my day job, I have worked as a paralegal for 20 some odd years now. And this paraprofessional occupation is very weird right? <laughs> for people to understand what it is that you do. And at least in law offices, it can look very different 
from office to office, from firm to firm, from lawyer to lawyer, you know, like they each have their preferences for what you do or don't do or think, you know, so it's a, it's a very, yeah, kind of muddied uh, gray area to, to explain to people outside that world. So you have to tell us about Buddha because I was obsessed with this story in your book, which we're going to talk more about too. But can you tell us how Buddha like came into your life? And oh my gosh, this little guy, I wish I had had the chance to meet him. (laughs) I wish you had to. I wish the world had an opportunity to meet him. I mean, if if you and I and the rest of the world could possess the kind of self-love that he had for himself, um, it was unbelievable. He was courageous. He was funny. Um, I fell in love with him instantly. We went to, you know, once we had decided we wanted a pug, we went to look at some puppies. I never even looked at the other puppies. I just was like, this is my soul dog. This is my, this is my man. And he was, and, you know, we brought him home first time dog owners, you know, and we're just like hanging on by a thread, (laughs) you know, we're hanging on by a thread with him uh, because he's so active and, and really smart. And gosh, he was just wonderful. And we went through a lot of adventures together. You know, we bought our first house with him. We, you know, fixed it up. We had so many adventures as most families do with their dogs. And then uh, there was a couple of things that had happened to him along the way. He'd had to have a couple of orthopedic procedures. And then that's sort of also where, for me, another clicking in for canine rehabilitation came in because he had uh, some orthopedic issues that needed to be repaired. But the thing about him that was... um, that's so striking that changed my life was that at the age of seven, he went blind suddenly. And I will tell you that honestly, he was so good at, at navigating our home because he'd been there his whole life. He didn't really show a lot of signs of, of uh, blindness until we moved. And then he started bumping into stuff. And then we were like, Oh no, we're, we're facing a big problem here. And so this dog who was once sort of this really, uh, bold, energetic, a dog that loved adventures had now become shut down. Um, I would say, I'm going to use the word depressed. I know that it might be a bit anthropomorphic, but I'm going to use the word depressed here. But that's what it seemed like. He was sort of shut down and frightened. And um, he was diagnosed with a condition called sudden acquired retinal degeneration syndrome. Unfortunately, we still don't know very much about sudden acquired retinal degeneration syndrome. That's sort of the blindness part or the sudden blindness part may be the tip of the iceberg in this disease. There may be many, many factors to it. We just don't understand, but these dogs can lose their vision in a matter of um, weeks or days. Wow. um, Yeah. And so they're they're They may be sighted, you know, the day before and then the next day they are not. Wow. So it was pretty traumatic for our our entire family Yeah. um, because he was the center of it and he knew it. He was the center of everything. So I have his nickname was the emperor. That's what they called him. Exactly. And that's what he thought he was. And, uh, you know, I brought him to work and, and somebody at work gave him that nickname and it stuck uh, because that was truly his personality. He was the emperor and you were go- you were going to cater to that. You were going to cater to that. And if you didn't, oof, oof, you know, you could get, uh, get ugly. And I saw he did agility too. He did before he lost his vision. He did agility. He loved it. I mean, we never got to compete because uh, 
I was never that good and it's difficult to run dogs that have, you know, have brachiocephalic, so those flat face breeds. So we could only do a certain amount for a certain time, make sure that he was doing it safely. But he thought he was great. And when people would laugh at him, it was like fuel for him. He would just take off, <laughs> run into the tunnel. He wouldn't come out. I had to grab, go in and get him out and pull him out. Like, And he just loved he loved laughter. He loved making people laugh. I'm not sure he knew why he was funny or why he thought he was funny, but um, but he loved it. It was like fuel for him. He just enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it was just a huge, just life-changing event to have him lose his sight like that. It was. And I there were so many overwhelming feelings that I had when it happened. I think one, I was really disappointed in myself because at that point I'd been a technician for almost 20 years. And I thought, how did I not, how did I miss this? How did I not recognize that my dog is losing his vision? And so, and I think a lot of people might go through that and, and um, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault. I, it was a, a gnarly thing that mother nature threw at us and it, it wasn't our fault. And that's what I like to tell people who have dogs that have lost their vision. It's not your fault. It was just this gnarly mother nature uh, diagnosis. Uh, so I was disappointed in myself, but I also was thinking, well, that's it. My dog's life is over. Our life together is over. His life is over. How am I going to keep him safe? How, how am I going to help him navigate the world? How is he going to get by? And what is his quality of life going to be? So it was a devastating blow. Yeah, it was really rough. But it sounds like you guys came out the other side okay. We did come out the other side okay. But we did have to pull it together a little bit. You know, we started, um, I think the first thing I did was like, okay, Kathy, you've got to pull this together because you've got to be there for him and, and teach him how to, to navigate his world now. And what I like to tell people or what I always tell my clients is, clients are, if their dog loses vision or has low vision, is that you know, our dogs navigate the world by scent. So we know that their their primary sense is smell. And I would say arguably vision might be third. So it, so certainly s smell, the sense of smell, hearing might be second. And arguably I think vision may be third for dogs. So they have these other senses that we can maximize. We can use those to our advantage. And that's pretty much what we did. We use these other senses to our advantage. We did the first thing we did was safety proof our home which is what I tell everybody, block your, your, your stairs, get your baby gates out, block off your balconies, block off anywhere you don't want your dog to, to go unaccompanied. And then we start our, our training with things like tactile cues. So rug runners in the house or yoga mats, you know, dogs have um, sensory receptors on their feet. And so they can tell when they've changed from carpet to hardwood to linoleum to, you know, they can feel that. And so that is a good tactile cue for dogs who are blind to get to places or locations that are important, the food bowl, the back door, their bed, or navigate the home. And not to mention, you know, traction, of course, because that's, you know, I'm a canine rehab person, so I have to mention traction. <laughs> but those are things that we would do. We would use these cues and the sense of smell. You know, I didn't want to use an overwhelming amount of scent, but I did use some scents in my home. So there was, I think we used initially like lavender and vanilla. And then I found a, um, I found online, I think they're called tracers. They're pre-scented location markers. So they have a scent on them already and they're like little stickers. So you can put them places. So I put them in key locations for him. So I think I used a handful. I put one at the food and water bowl. So he would have that association between that scent and where his food and water bowl was. 
I put one on the table leg because that's one of the places he'd bump his head. So he, he would know to take that left, you know, when he got there uh, and the back door. So we, we, we mapped out some important key locations in the house for him. And then what I did to get him to really map out that house initially was walking in the house on leash from location to location together so that he would have that same route every time and not bump into things. And once he started feeling confident, things changed. Once he started having confidence, he was back and he could navigate that house like a trooper. He rarely bumped into things. He knew where everything was. Everything was predictable for him. So we made everything as predictable as possible. He got up at the same time. He went out at the same time. He had breakfast at the same time. And once that confidence hit, I started expanding his world and we're doing new adventures now because now he's feeling confident. And the emperor is back at this point. <laughs> <laughs> the emperor is back. Um, and so I wrote about it. I, I thought this would be great for other people whose dogs have, have low vision or have lost their vision. And in particular for people whose dogs have been diagnosed with sudden acquired retinal degeneration syndrome, because that's a huge blow. You know, I wish I could go back in time too, because I see myself in exam rooms with clients saying, telling them your dog's going to be okay. You know, your dog's lost their vision, but they're going to be okay. But I didn't realize how devastating that was right. until you me. Right? I didn't understand. And I wish I had said, this is how it's going to be okay. Right. This is how it's going to happen and your dog is going to be okay. Uh, so I wish I could go back in time and do that. But in any case, I wrote a book called Blind Devotion, Enhancing the Lives of Blind and Visually Impaired Dogs, because I wanted to share that with owners so that they would know how their dog is going to be okay, how their dog is going to survive this, how they're going to survive this, and how they're going to get back to, or how what I would call your new normal. So yeah. maybe there's some other things that you can't do. Maybe you can't do agility now, but maybe your blind dog could do nose work, or maybe you can't, I don't know, you know, go for a run with your dog, but there's no reason that you can't do other activities with them. Lots of great environmental enrichment and fun stuff. So there are things that you can do. And I, I can tell you for sure that, you know, blind dogs can live a happy, joyful, interesting life without vision. Because I've seen it and I've lived it. So, how long of a of a time do you think it was before he really regained his confidence again? I'm going to say it was about three to four months before he regained his confidence again. I think that you know, there's there's always a difference. I think in dogs that maybe lose their vision slowly versus dogs who lose it suddenly. Um, so, dogs I think that are losing it slowly seem to be there's almost an adapt. It can adapt to that period, perhaps before they've lost their vision. And like I've said before, maybe you wouldn't even know that their dog is losing some of its vision because they're so good at adapting. I mean, dogs and cats and they're just amazing at adapting to their environments. And you maybe you wouldn't even know. But dogs who lose it suddenly, I think, are a little bit take a little bit more time to acclimate to this yeah. new world. You know. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's amazing. Three to four months. I was thinking you were going to say like a year or something. I mean, well, he's the emperor. Yeah, he bounced <laughs> back. <laughs> he bounced back, you know, and um, we had him until he was about 14 years old. And we adopted not that long after that a dog from Pug Rescue of New England. His name was Digger. And Digger was surrendered because he had sudden acquired retinal degeneration syndrome. Um, and his family felt that they couldn't. They couldn't support him in the way that he needed to be supported. 
Uh, and so we adopted him thinking, okay, you know, we've done this before. We can do this again. And we did. And he was an amazing little guy. And we actually signed him up for nose work classes because he was an adventurer. He liked a new adventure and he liked new things. And we, what I found was, you know, that maybe what worked for Buddha wasn't necessarily what Digger needed. And so I needed to adapt to what it was that he needed to make his world great and make his world a little bit bigger and make his world a little bit more adventurous. And nose work was it for him. He was fantastic at it. And it was something to see, you know, I'm in class with a bunch of people who are, have German shepherds and eagles and there's spaniels. And there I am with my chubby blind pug, Um, but he loved it. And, and I have to give, you know, praise and kudos to his nose work instructor because she gave him every bit of, of the attention that she gave every other student and dog in that class, even though he wasn't going to compete to have an opportunity to search. And he oh, I it. love that. Yeah, and he loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Before I get into asking you kind of like what pet parents should know about mm-hmm. caring for blind dogs, I did want to talk about like how do other people react to this? You know, cause I I've heard, other weird comments before about dogs that have any kind of, you know, life change, like it could be an amputation, but just that sometimes you get people that say really strange things. And you talk about this a lot in the book, which I really appreciated. I, yeah. And it's, it's been my, it has unfortunately had been my experience that once or twice that somebody had said something like, well, you know, you're just, you're being selfish. Why don't you put him down or that poor dog? And I assure you, if you know any of my dogs, you should not feel sorry for any of them because they are all fine. But you're right. Also in canine rehabilitation, we see um, dogs that are uh, have mobility impairments. Maybe they have an amputation or maybe they're in a the wheelchair. And certainly what happens almost, I would say, at least once to all of these clients is that somebody with has some unsolicited opinion or comment about their dog and their dog's condition or maybe what they perceive as their dog as the dog's quality of life, and that's really hard to hear. That is yeah. really hard to hear. Um, and initially, you know, I think your first response is to get angry, right? Is to get angry. You don't know what you know what's wrong with my dog, and you don't know how we live, and et cetera. You don't really know anything about that. But what I try to do, Aaron, with my blind dog was was educate people and tell them things like. Oh, Maybe they can relate to things like cataracts. So somebody's, if I told them my dog was blind from cataracts, they might go, oh, well, hey, my grandmother, you know, is blind from cataracts and she's doing fine. Um, Or my dog has glaucoma and maybe they can understand that. Um, And so I try to educate them about my dog. And SARDS, although is limiting, it's not a particularly, it's not a painful disease, but it's a limiting, it's limiting because the dogs go blind suddenly. So I like to show them things that my dog can do, which is just about anything. My dog can sit and give paw and shake and turn and spin. He does nose work. Um, and I think that once they see that the dog is doing dog stuff, um, I think they might, they might stop and think about it. And even if they don't say it then, maybe later they might say, hey, you know what? I saw a blind dog today and he he was doing really good. He knows how to sit. He was going for a walk around the lake and he went for a swim. And, um, and I think that that's how we educate people about blind dogs is, is sort of uh, trying not to be angry and trying not to approach it with anger, but trying to approach it from, I'm going to try and educate you on what my dog's condition is. Now, 
you don't have to take that. If somebody's giving you an unsolicited nasty comment, you can feel free to just walk away, not have to educate anyone else. And there have been times when I've, I've walked away and I've been times when I've told clients to walk away. Um, but there also have been times when clients have educated people on dogs that are blind or deaf or in wheelchairs. And, you know, I, I like to think that maybe somewhere down the line, those people s- maybe think it, think twice about it. You know, if they are adopting a dog or if they go to a shelter, just just take a look at the dog that's blind. It may not be for you, but you don't know that until you really meet that dog, you know. So I try to be an advocate for as many either sensory impaired or physically impaired animals as I can by trying to educate. Yeah, I loved that. And I I just loved with both of your books, the children's book also, like that you're showing that there's a wonderful quality of life, even when there's this other challenge going on. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so I I saw that Digger got, he got his own book too. Well, you can't have one dog have one book and then <laughs> dog having another book. But it occurred to me at some point, in our life with Digger, that this might be a great opportunity to educate children about living with dogs that have some type of impairment and how that we can show all animals empathy and kindness. And we can still and teach children that we can live with dogs or cats or any other animal that has an impairment and incorporate them into our family and love them just like any other pet that we might have. And so that was a wonderful experience. The kids are so open to it too. They are totally down for me reading that book uh, when I come into their class, they have so many questions, and I, I think they're really open to it too. So I love to see that children are listening to the message and getting it right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I just I love. It's like, oh, we want a dog that's like fun and will play, and it's like, oh, there's this blind dog, and I just oh, it made my heart happy. <laughs> I, I love that. Was I had so much fun writing that book, and my illustrator Anne Zamansky was fam- fabulous. She totally got what my vision was about it. Um, I love that the dog is doing all kinds of fun things with the family, eating marshmallows, playing and playing with the kids. And, um, and all the while he has no vision, but the kids are trying to keep him safe. So I really love that message for the kids that they can, you know, they should also take some responsibility. You know, that adults, of course, but some the children should also be involved in raising of pets if we can and having some responsibility in caring for those pets, I think is a good lesson for them as well. Yeah, I thought that was great. And of course, I'll make sure I have links in the show notes for everyone to both the books. Thank you. So I really wanted to talk some about the vision issues that you cover in the book, because I I thought some of this was fascinating. And I've been fortunate so far in my dog mom life over the last 20 years that I haven't run into a dog with vision problems at this point in time. But I thought I was like, so glad to learn these things and know these things. And so I wanted to know like what you think pet parents should know about their dog's vision. And one of the things that you covered right away, I was so happy about, because there's a lot of like, I don't know if myths or misunderstandings about like, can they see black and white or color or is it certain colors? So can you like share with us how that works? Um, Well, dogs don't see it. They have two wavelengths of, of cones. They don't have all the color spectrum like you and I do but they can see color. They can see blue or spectrums of blue. So blue to like violet and yellows. Um, and so one of the things I talk about for people who have dogs that have, you know, maybe low vision versus blindness is using those colors to your advantage. So um, you can take 
blue tape and put it on the edge of your stair so the dog can see that this is the edge of the stair. If they have that, if they have some vision, they might be able to see that this blue tape is at the end of the stair. Um, but yeah, you're right. Dog seeing in black and white is a misconception. They can see some color, although it's not full spectrum color like you and I, but I think that it's another way to use something to our advantage if we have a dog that has low vision versus being blind. Can we use those colors to our advantage? Yeah, maybe we can. Maybe we can use those colors to our advantage. And I guess it's funny sometimes when you think about like the different toys or things for dogs that are like in all these crazy colors. And <laughs> that's more for the people, I guess. <laughs> We're always in orange. I think that's for us so we can find it in the grass, <laughs> right? And I think, you know, the dog's probably just happy that we're playing with them. I don't know that they care so much about color, but yeah, they can see some color and see some color. And then one of the things that I thought was really fascinating was about the depth perception mm-hmm. and how that this can vary by breed of dog and like by the like shape of their snout. Can you tell us more right. about that? Right. And maybe you don't think about it too much because you think, well, eyes are eyes, right? So they're all the same, but not necessarily, you know, they're, they're, their ability to see or their depth perception or their visual field is different based on the shape of their skull and the position of the eyes. So you will see, so my pug has his eyes are like right in the front like that. So you're probably more likely to find my dog doing something like maybe watching an image on television because he can see very clearly up front that this is the television screen versus chasing a rabbit. You know, he can see the rabbit, but he's not a sight hound. So our sighthounds, their eyes are more to the side and they can see peripherally very well, but you know, when they're, but they're blocked by their nose when they're looking straight forward. Does that make sense? So at some point they're blocked sort of by their nose or they get, you know, they get binocular vision, which is where the two images come together as one. um, But they're blocked a little bit by that, that nose. But this is what makes them great hunters is that they have this per, this great peripheral vision. And so they can see those rabbits on the horizon and they can, ch- they can chase them because they can see them really well and get good peripheral vision. And they're fast, of course, but also they have really good peripheral vision versus my pug who doesn't understand that if you chase a rabbit and it takes a zigzag move that it hasn't disappeared. Like he's just <laughs> completely baffled by the fact that it ran off, you know, took a right and ran off. Um, so they see things a little bit differently. So some dogs are going to see better up close and some dogs are going to see better, you know, or have a wider field of vision peripherally. So it based on um, how their eyes are set in their skull as to how they're going to, are they going to see something good up close or are they going to see something better peripherally? I had never thought about that before. I found that completely yeah, fascinating. Different, different. And, you know, and they have different, they have different, some of these dogs also have different. So their sighthounds have this dense set of nerves that run along the back, back of the eyeball called visual streak. And that's what gives them a really good wide peripheral vision where some of our dogs that have eyes in the front of their head have a little patch of cells called area centralis. And that's what makes them be able to see things up close in front versus peripheral. So some dogs, like I said, are going to see better peripherally and some are going to see better up close. And then what is the word for that like reflectiveness that we see oh, like, when we're at yeah. night? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Don't you love that when you see that yes. little glow? It's so cute. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a layer of cells called the, uh, the tapetum. And that's what reflects light back, reflects light back like a mirror into the eye. 
And that's what allows our dogs to have good night vision. That's why they're better at night vision than you and I are. And you'll see, you'll see it in cats too. You know, if you run your flashlight along the back outside looking for your cat or your, even a possum or your, you know, <laughs> your other animals, you'll see that little glow. And that's, that's what you're hitting. That's you're, you're reflecting the light from the tapetum in the eye. And that's what makes them superior hunters and superior, particularly nighttime hunters. Yeah. I, I had never, I knew that they had this reflective, but I never knew that there was like, that there was a word for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That glow, the shimmery glow. Yeah. <laughs> and so you had mentioned with Buddha, you know, that the signs of him starting to lose his vision were so subtle. Are there changes in behavior that we should look for in our dogs that could indicate a vision problem? That's a good question. Um, because they do, they can mask it very well if they're losing their vision progressively or slowly. But of course, bumping into things is that number one thing. Are they, are they bumping into things that they wouldn't normally bump into? The chair, the table, you, um, any of those things. So and it, bumping into stuff is usually a big one. The other thing I, I notice about some of my patients who have lost their vision is they often have a high startle reflex. So um, they, if you touch them and they're like, oh my God, you know, where did you come from? Oh my gosh, where did that happen? That high startle reflex can be a, a sign Losing confidence in things that they were historically confident about. So like getting in and out of the car or going up and down stairs, right, might be um, might be an indication that there's some visual impairment. And um, sometimes, I mean, sometimes I think that it doesn't happen with every animal, but sometimes they maybe get grumpy with some of the other animals in the house just because they of that high startle reflex or they didn't realize they were there or, you know, there's some interaction where they just, that, that dog may want, you know, everybody to keep a wide you know, give them a wide space. And then also the looking at your dog's eye in general, you know, is it cloudy? Is it, it should be clear. Um, is there any cloudiness, any bluish gray appearance, anything that looks abnormal to you um, and any of those things? And we should go to the veterinarian and have that checked out and, and see why, why is that happening? It should look nice and clear. The structures of the eye should look nice and clear. One of the things I, I liked that uh, you have in the book for anybody who could be dealing with a dog with no vision or, as you said, low vision, which I guess would just be like the loss of vision. So, yeah, your low vision dogs may actually have some degree of, they may have something. Maybe they see better in lit areas or maybe they see better in other circumstances. Maybe they see a little bit better peripherally. Maybe they see a little bit better on. So those dogs aren't considered blind, but they are visually impaired. So your dogs with cataracts would probably be considered, you know, the dog with a visual impairment. I liked how much detail in the photos and examples that you gave about how to keep your dog safe around the house. And I had never seen the angel vest and the halos before. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us about those? Those yeah. are amazing. I was really worried because my dog, again, he has large bulgy eyes because he's a pug and they're in the front of his face. And so his eyes are you know, I don't, they almost come out past his snout. So I'm worried about him getting an corneal, a corneal abrasion, um, some type of trauma to the eye, um, because those things are painful. So I, you know, I, I know he's lost his vision. And so I'm, I'm not really worried about that, but what I don't want him to have any type of painful event with that eye. And so I looked into getting um, a halo for him and there were several on the market I think at the time, I'm not sure that they're available anymore. I used a halo for paws. So stinking cute. It's a little vest with just a little plastic hoop that runs around to the front of their face, almost like a little, little halo, right? And this halo 
um, is going to help them avoid those nasty head bumps or, you know, help you help the dog avoid maybe getting something of blunt trauma to the eye. I think there's a, there's another one out that I like too. I think it's muffins halo and, uh, she's been around for quite some time and she's always been very generous with the blind dog community with her vest. So, you know, you can always check her out. So I, I think it was a good idea to use to be protective for my dog. Is this the tool for everyone? I don't, I'm not sure that it's the tool for everyone because there is a bit of a period where you, you have to do a bit, a little bit of, you know, get used to adapting to it because it does, it does bump. You know, if you're going to walk into a wall, you're going to, that thing's going to hit first. And so you want to make sure that this is it, that, you acclimate the dog to it. So what I did was we, we, did, we ordered it like five minutes, four times a day, and then 10 minutes, three times a day until we got it most of the time. And he became acclimated to it. And he was pretty smart about it because he knew that when that, after a while, he knew that when that hoop touched something or hit something, he had to back up. He wasn't going to hit his face and he would back up. And to some degree, I would say that he used it as a navigation tool sometimes too, right? Um, you know, he put it to the floor sometimes and tap it along to get to his food bowl until he hit that food bowl. So he was really smart about how he used it. And I, I think it's just another tool to have in your bag when you have a dog that's blind. And I think that this doesn't have to be a stressful event, you know, teaching your dog to acclimate to the, to the hoop. I think that if you do it in a positive manner, that it can be done. And I think that the dog can learn to use it in many ways, protectively, or maybe navigation, um, because they're pretty smart, right? Right. <laughs> they use it to their advantage. Uh, so I used it a lot because I liked the idea that my dog wasn't going to get these nasty head bumps. And I was always worried about that. And I was always worried about, well, you know, is it frustrating for him to, to bump his head, you know, repeatedly? And I imagine it probably would be frustrating to hit your head repeatedly. And that is going to be, you know, it's going to be something that happens to blind dogs. They are going to bump into things. It's They are going to bump into things. And can we protect them from those head bumps or protect them from, you know, bumping their, getting their eye scratched um, was a number, one of my number one safety concerns for him was I want to make sure he doesn't get a corneal abrasion or a corneal ulcer. And then you had pictures too, like I was thinking of like, uh, like the pool noodles or something to like protect along corners and edges and things. Clients are so creative. I can't even tell you how many times people have come in with a new thing to show me what they've done to protect their dog from bumping into things like chair legs or table legs or the fireplace, right? Um, and so, yeah, I used pool noodles on some of my furniture where I was worried he would bump. So I just cut it, you know, and then I just kind of like used some tape to stick it to those. I mean, it didn't look great. And if you came over, we'd probably look, <laughs> it didn't grow great with our aesthetics, but, but it was safe for him. And then I found some fireplace safety guards that had some adhesive on the back that were great for corners. So I was trying to, to my best of my ability to uh, pad things that he could potentially hit his head on. And like I said, clients just have come up with some really great stuff. But I like the pool noodles and the and the fireplace guards. I thought they were great because they also the fireplace guard had an adhesive, so it was really perfect for corners to, to just stick on corners, right? Yeah, I I loved seeing all of this. I was like, oh, you know, because I would never think that creatively. <laughs> People are so creative when it comes to protecting their animals. They are so creative. Right? And then what about dog, dog interactions when one of the dogs is blind? Do you, did you pr- like protect him from that or, or what was your experience like? I'm always cautious with dog interactions in general, yeah. just in general, 
But yeah, my dog liked to interact with other dogs. And I was worried. I'm like, are they going to perceive him as different? Because, you know, in the, you know, social construct of dogs, you know, having wide staring eyes that don't divert or look away can be, you know, considered rude. Right. So I worried about that. So I did let him interact with dogs that I knew to have a history of being dog friendly and, and letting him interact with those dogs, of course, always supervised by two people. So my, me with my dog and then owner with their dog, always there to, to watch each dog. So I don't do it by myself. I would do this with someone else so that there was two of us. The other thing I did was I would just take my dog with friends, dogs to a neutral location and go for a walk on leash, neutral location through the woods. And he loved that. But you're right. There is some concern about how other dogs might perceive a dog that that can't look away or that doesn't divert their eyes or may be perceived as like large and staring, right? Because they don't know that another dog is looking at them. So I think it's really important to supervise these interactions, but also familiarize yourself with basic dog body language so that you can see if something is not going right. So uh, Brenda Aloff has a great book on, uh, I think it's called, uh, they're photographs, photographic like dog images of body language. So you should familiarize yourself with things that are simple, like the play bow or, uh, you know, the growling, the lip rolling, um, any of those things that or rolling over and showing your belly, you know, what does that mean? So I think it's important to have at least a basic understanding of dog body language before you introduce your dog, your blind dog to another dog or, or, or take your dogs to a neutral location on leash and maybe walk together and see if that you know, goes well. So I, it, it's important to, because your dog, your blind dog can very easily be injured in an, in an altercation with another dog. They're not really going to have a great chance of, of defending themselves in that situation. Um, or avo- evading or avoiding it. Right, or avoiding, exactly. And I feel the same way um, when I, when people want to, you know, meet my dog, um, I always say, uh, you know, uh, let him know you're there, you know, for, for Digger, his, the solicitation for a greeting was a thigh slap. So he knew that slapping the thigh meant you're there and that there was a greeting. And if he chose to greet you, that was great. But if he didn't, I respected that choice. If he chose to get behind me, I would be an advocate for him and be like, not today. He's not, he's not having it, but I don't want people to startle him. I don't want people to frighten him. Um, I want him to have as many positive experiences as he can. Right. I mean, we're not always going to have positive. It's not always going to be positive, but I'm trying to have him not be frightened or startled by people um, you know, there was, I had a neighbor who had a little girl and, and every time she saw us, she would just run down the hill going dog. And I'd be like, you're not ready. <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, what if I ran down the hill going little girl, you know, people would think I was, that would be weird. Yeah. Right. And so it was weird to my dog. And I was like, no, you're not ready yet. But I think that I need to, res- I, I was an advocate for him and I respected if he decided he was going to decline a greeting from a human. Same thing with the dog. If he chooses to get behind me and doesn't want to greet, then that's that's what it is. And we're, we're done here. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh, you have put together such an incredible resource with your book for any pet parents dealing with this blindness issue. I like I was even going to compliment you on how much you talked about body language in the book and had photos and things because I, I think that's one of the most important things that pet parents can do. And I'm excited that you're giving me another book to to check out for this. I'll make sure I put a link to that for everybody. I have two that I always recommend and I'm excited there's a third. Amos got a great book on body, like just understanding body language. And it was one of the my go-to books um, when I was, and, and I, I am familiar with dog body language, but there's a lot of subtleties uh, that we're not, we may not as owners be familiar with. So I think it's great to check out any of those books that talk, to talk about dog body language and dog interactions and appropriate dog interactions. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's like, that's like the number one thing I want every pet parent to know. <laughs> that's right. 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 Ha- familiarize yourself with dog body language, you know, and conversely, you know, Sometimes having a blind dog, because I get this question a lot, should I get my blind dog another a companion? And I think that it depends on your family dynamics and your and your dog's feelings about other dogs. And so, yeah, sometimes I think it works out great. Sometimes that blind dogs can take cues from other animals in the house, your other dog, your other cat. But again, you've got to look at you've got to look at your family dynamics. Can you have another dog in your house? What if this doesn't work out? What if the blind dog is like, no, thank you? Right. So you really need to, yeah, you really need to think that through. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about some that you now have worked now work in the as a certified canine rehabilitation practitioner, right? CCRP. Yes. 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 And I love this field. Obviously, again, I know that it's not playing with puppies every day, but I will say that year, several years ago, my old gal Kalua did some canine rehab. And I remember thinking that that would just look like a fun job to have. <laughs> Honestly, Erin, sometimes I'm at work and I go, I cannot believe this is a job because a lot of times <laughs> it is really, really fun. And not only is it fun, but it's super rewarding, especially in the realm of, of geriatrics. You know, when I see dogs or cats doing things that they haven't done in months, get on the chair, go for a ride, go for a walk. Like that fuels me. I love it. Nothing is better than somebody coming in and going, she picked up a toy, you know, and she shook it and, you know, whatever, because it's such an impact on that dog's quality of life. Uh, so, you know, yeah, you're sometimes it's, sometimes it's rough, just like any other field with animals, but it can be so rewarding. So I'm imagining that you're working with, you said with geriatrics, uh, I'm imagining maybe like I'm thinking I have rescued pit bulls and uh, CCL tears are one of the most common things that, that I have seen, uh, you know, amongst the, the pit bull population. So whether people have surgery or not, I'm, I'm sure you're probably working with those kinds of cases. What are some of the other things uh, that you're, you're working with, the conditions that you work with? Oh, goodness. I see. And I think anything that you might think for yourself, what you might think about is physical therapy in humans, you can oftentimes that translates to our dogs. So just like you said, um, we have dogs that our most common orthopedic thing is uh, CCL tear. So we see that a lot in pit bulls, Labradors, um, those high energy, higher, uh, larger breed dogs. We see uh, patellar luxations. We see hip replacements. We see things that are congenital, like hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia. And then we see our more um, dramatic cases where we have dogs that have neurologic injury so conditions like um, uh, intervertebral disc disease or degenerative myelopathy, um, and dogs can also get um, you know, stroke-like events called fibrocartilaginous embolisms. And so those are more dramatic cases that we see. But we also see, Chris, I, I think, you know, I, 
why well, I talked to you about my my uh, other partner, Chris. You know, we see anybody who needs. We did a pig. We saw a pig last year. And oh. She hurt her leg, and we were like, "Yeah, I think we can do this." Um, so I think it translates just like people. So if you had something like a sprain or a strain or a fracture or an orthopedic repair, they would send you to physical therapy. And the same thing for pets. If you've had some type of muscle injury, some type of orthopedic surgery or neurologic injury, they'll send you off to physical rehabilitation. Um, and then I will see in my, the place I work, but I see largely dogs, but I will see cats. And sometimes I'll see other animals. I see chickens and um, roosters and ducks and uh, the pig, my friend, Penny, the pig. Um, so anything that's in that small animal realm, no large animals for me, I'm not familiar with the behaviors of that, but smaller animals. I, I'm down for seeing any of those birds or see any of them. <laughs> and so what kind of different modalities? Uh, I know like in the book, you talk some about like swimming and I'm always picturing like those um, things that look like half of a ball or something. Yeah, you can use all of those things, you know, and you, I can pretty much turn anything into an exercise as long as the pet is down for it, right? So, so many simple things like uh, swimming. If they love swimming, we can use that to our advantage because we can unweight them completely non-weight bearing for swimming. So dogs that are recovering from uh, like things that we talked about, like strokes, some things you maybe can't do on land that maybe you can do in the water. Um, underwater treadmill, that's a big one. We use that so much because it's, it's so great because I can unweight the patient so much. So if you've just had surgery, you've had recovered from an orthopedic surgery, you have a neurologic injury, you have some type of sports injury, I can unweight you significantly and get good muscle contraction and good range of motion without a lot of, without a lot of concussive, repetitive, concussive, like full weight bearing. So that's one of my favorites. And then now I think you'll see, uh, you know, we see a lot of patients for laser therapy was very effective in lots of these things like bicipital tendonitis, supraspinatus tendinopathies, things like that, that are inflammatory diseases or inflammatory conditions. Um, and we're even moving now into um, uh, shockwave therapy, pulse shockwave for dogs that have these conditions that maybe aren't responding to sort of more traditional rehabilitation modalities. And uh, so I think anything that you get for yourself, you might be able to get for your pet. <laughs> what is shockwave therapy? Gosh. Um, I'm not sure I can describe this well, Erin. It's shockwave therapy is, is like sound wave therapy. So we're breaking up scar tissue and inflammation and it kind of, it's, it's not actually shocking you. It's a terrible name because we, we it doesn't sound like something you would want to sign up for at all, but it's really just a sound wave. And so you may be familiar with it with um, people who have like kidney stones. Or That's what I was just oh, thinking. Yeah, okay. that. So we do things like, again, for these animals that have things like uh, tendinopathies, it's a great uh, modality for helping them just sort of break up some of that scar tissue and, and, and that calcification that it cases the, the tendon. Um, and it's been, it's come so much farther now than it has 20 years ago where it's much more comfortable for the patients and they tolerate it really well. Uh, so it's exciting to see that it's sort of a, I wouldn't call it a new modality, but it's a, a it's an improved modality. <laughs> and so do you, do pet parents have to get like referred to this from their veterinarian or can they just decide to go or how does, how does that work? Good question. I think that there, you know, it, it, I think that some of it depends on the, the rehab rehabilitation practitioners, original licensing, so if you're a veterinarian who's also a canine rehabilitation practitioner, then you don't have to take a referral for that. They'll just take you right in. 
Um, I do because my I'm a veterinary technician who's who's who practices uh, canine rehabilitation. So for all of my patients, I see the veterinarian first, and then they get referred to me, usually within that practice that I work in. And I think it's always best, regardless of what state or what your practice act says, for your veterinarian to be the head of that team, regardless. So the, the veterinarian should always be the person who has made the diagnosis. The veterinarian should always be informed of what's going on with the patient, how they're progressing and how they're doing. So that person really needs to be the head of your rehabilitation team. So, you know, I work with a lot of alternative modalities in our vet care. So like my veterinarian does acupuncture and ozone. And in this kind of world, um, these handheld red light lasers are like big business right now. (laughs) And I guess I'm always curious, are these as good as everybody who's trying to sell me one Mm -hmm. makes them out to be? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's difficult because there have been times that I've had owners come to me and go, I found this online, you know. So the kind of laser I use in our practice is powerful. And in you, it's, it's not something that owners would have at home. But if you're using something, I'm going to give you an example because we, uh, I'm, I work with a company called MedCovet, and they have a, a light therapy tool called the Luma. Now that that unit itself is one red and infrared, so it's good for skin and it's good for deeper tissue. It also meets the World Association of Laser Therapy guidelines, so I know that the specs or what I'm delivering as far as treatment goes is what is actually being delivered. Does that make sense? It meets, it meets the specs. So if you go on and you try to get some of these red light therapy tools, uh, red light lasers online, I don't know what their wavelengths are. I don't know what their specs are. I don't know if it meets the world association laser guidelines. Um, and, and some of the ones that you move around are difficult because you can't quantify what's actually, is it, what's penetrating, is it getting penetrating through the skin into the muscle or is it getting lost in the fur we just don't really know. And there may be other ones on the market that are great and meet those guidelines. I just don't know when I go to Amazon, which one is that? How do I know for sure that this is a good a good therapy tool? But I will say this, I think that laser is fantastic. I mean, it's really one of my go-to modalities. Red light laser is one of my go-to modalities for just about every patient that has some type of injury or neurologic condition you know, there are some contraindications to it, but it's not a lot. So the, you know, we don't want to use it in an area of, uh, where we think there might be cancer or some type of neoplasia. And we, you know, we don't want to use it over a dog's uterus who may be pregnant, but the contraindications for a lot of these are very minimal. Um, and so it, it's been a great tool. And in my opinion, it has replaced a lot of some of the things that we used to do. So we used to do a lot of ultrasound therapy in, in dogs, you know, 20 years ago, but now i I probably wouldn't even pull that out. I would go right for my laser because I'm getting better results with laser therapy than some of the other modalities that we used to use. Oh, interesting. (laughs) So I first met you through the PetAbility podcast that you do with Chris. So do you and Chris do work together every day? We, We don't every day. Chris and I met probably 20 plus years ago. We both worked at the same rehab center. Um, you know, we both had the, well, one, we both had the same sense of humor and two, uh, you know, Chris was, um, very impressive, a very talented, she's a human physical therapist, but very, very talented in her animal practices with, with all of our patients. And she was a beloved member, member of our team. And then Chris went on to do other things. She, um, opened 
her own center, her own re- canine rehabilitation center called Flow Dog in Boston, Massachusetts, which she's since retired from. But we always stay in touch because, uh, you know, I think that honestly, between us, it's the perfect marriage. She's a human physical therapist and see things from a different perspective. And I'm a veterinary technician and I see things from another view. And when we come together, we can collaborate beautifully because we have two different, you know, we're coming from two different places. Um, and so maybe she'll think of something that I wouldn't. And maybe sometimes I think of something that she wouldn't think of. So we're always collaborating. Uh, so uh, I, I, I've had to stay in touch with Chris over the years because she's brilliant. <laughs> really, really brilliant rehabber. Very good. Well, I love the Petability Podcast because I love nerding out on health things and, you know, trying to have our dogs live a longer, happier, healthier life with us. So do you want to talk about some of the different topics that you guys cover on your podcast? I mean, we did blind dogs, of course. (laughs) And most of our topics um, are about uh, mobility and independence because we're canine canine rehabilitation practitioners. So we certainly do other shows outside that scope. You know, you and I talked and Chris talked about your healthcare journal. And we've brought it up many times in other podcasts. Uh, We just did a podcast with a woman who has a campaign to check your pups for lumps and bumps. And we were like, Hey, you know, what's great. Get that healthcare journal and then you can keep track of it. So we're always looking for better ways for people to uh, take care of their dogs or their pets, newer and better ways to treat them for, for diseases and conditions that are coming down the pike. But mostly our niche is rehabilitation. So we talk a lot about dogs that have common conditions like osteoarthritis or, you know, the CCL repair. Uh, We just did a show with uh, veterinarian Karen Pastor on patellar luxations. So most of it's about, you know, Chris and I are always about function. So most of our shows are about function, mobility, and and maintaining your pet's independence. That's kind of our, that's our thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, I've had, of course, I lost one of my dogs earlier this year, but you know, my guy Nino is, you know, 10 years old. He's an 80 pound, 10 year old dog, you know, and, and I'm really worried about his orthopedic health getting for, you know, moving forward. And my husband and I look at each other and I'm like, if I got to carry this dog, (laughs) like I'm not getting very far. You you don't have to worry. You have me and Chris, you can always, (laughs) but there are just so many things that, that you can do to maintain their mobility and independence. And Chris and I were like, we've got to share this with everybody because even simple things like what harness do I use? Should I use a ramp or should I use stairs, which is better for my dog? Um, Should I use, can I dog use a wheelchair? Is my dog a candidate for that? Will they use a wheelchair? So I think people need to, to know that, you know, because um, these are this, when, when something happens, oftentimes it happens in the, in the moment. So your dog tore their CCL or your dog had a, a neurologic event and there's no time for researching, right? right? There's no time because it's happened in the moment. And um, we want people to know that, that these things are available for them and for their pets. Well, I think you guys are doing great work. I'll make sure I have links in the show notes because I want everybody to check it out. And especially if you have these older dogs and you want to keep them moving, keep them their quality of life going, you know, I really appreciate you guys and all that you share. Thank you, Erin. It was so great to talk with you again, and I hope we get to uh, collaborate again in the future. Thank you so much for your time, Kathy. Thank you. I'm so grateful to Kathy for everything she shared with us. 
I'll have links in the show notes for you so you can check out her books. Blind Devotion is the book for pet parents, and Watching Out for Digger is the children's book about adopting a blind dog. I'll also have a link so that you can check out the Petability podcast. I was a guest all the way back in April of this year where we talked about the Dog Health Journal. And if you're interested in learning more about the Dog Health Journal or in any gifts for your furry family members this holiday season, I'll have a link in the show notes for you to check out Black Fur Day coming up on November 25th. Black Fur Day is a global online pet expo that runs from November 25th through December 1st with all your favorite pet vendors, including me. It was so much fun to be a part of it last year, and there were so many great deals on awesome products. So I hope I'll see you over in the Black Fur Day Facebook group. We're coming up on Thanksgiving week here in the U.S., and it's always just a great reminder for me to stop and think about all the things I'm grateful for, including you, my listeners. 2023 has been an amazing year for the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm so grateful for all your listens, downloads, shares, telling a friend, comments on social medias, DMs, emails, all of it. I just, I love hearing from you and you're always appreciated. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. If you like this episode, remember that you can always leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty much the biggest compliment that you can give a podcaster. You can always find me at Believe in Dog Podcast on Facebook or at Erin the Dog Mom on Instagram. So until next time, this is Erin Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.